0: Um, Well, good evening everyone and thank you very much for uh, joining us. Um, My name's Neil Murphy and um, I am delighted to welcome all of you to this very special and live edition of If Glasgow Walls Could Talk. Um, It's the first time we've done a live podcast recording like this, so please bear with us because normally we do this kind of in the comfort of our own homes. Via um, you know a kind of Zoom-like interface, so actually doing it live is obviously very different. But um, we will give it a go and see how see how it works. So um, right to talk about where we are at the moment, this is a new museum, which was opened in May by the Friends of Glasgow Rural Infirmary, and what we are doing here obviously now is to, is to launch this new series of podcasts for Glasgow City Heritage Trust, and you know as. Part of this is obviously a new experience for us and it's also good to be in what appears to be this new space and it's looking very swish this new space but obviously as we were kind of discussing when I arrived here um, this was the original main entrance into the the Glasgow Rural Infirmary. So it's kind of fascinating to see this kind of reopened up again because this had been subdivided up to store spaces for the building so it's great that you know this this space by this great Glasgow architect James Miller has kind of been liberated once more and been put to this fantastic new use so it really is a great setting for our first podcast um, which aims to explore the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow and so what we want to kind of talk about in this particular one is if these walls In this new museum and this you know magnificent and important hospital within the city and in Scotland what would they say if these walls could talk so this welcoming museum space celebrates this extraordinary history of Glasgow's oldest hospital in this kind of great you know east end location within the city centre it's much loved across the city and it has a reputation that is genuinely global um, for the innovations in medicine that have come from it. Um, it's also, you know, when you consider its context within the city as well, and when you approach it up Castle Street, which is what I normally do, um, and you see the sheer scale of it and how impressive it is as a set piece within the city, it really is quite something, particularly when you can kind of compare it in its setting in the Cathedral precinct next to Glasgow Cathedral. So, and there's obviously all these great connections. With both the cathedral and with Glasgow Necropolis as well. And you know, there are all these connections between all kind of three great institutions within within the city. So the original hospital building on this site, and this site was origin or was originally the Bishop's Palace, um, kind of this sort of fortified castle. So everyone kind of wonders where um, Glasgow's equivalent of Edinburgh Castle was. Well we're kind of roughly sitting in it just now. Um, so this was the original site of what was here, um, but the original hospital building, which was first started to be planned in about 1791 and opened in 1794 was built on this site. So by the great um, Scottish architect, Robert Adam and executed because he had died in um, 1792 by his, um, his brother, James Adam, who came out for retirement to finish this building. Um, So it was here to meet the the needs of what was a really rapidly growing city at that point. And the growth of Glasgow has obviously been a major issue in the city, particularly over the course of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. So, and the hospital has obviously had to keep expanding to keep up with those needs and to adapt to the industrialization and the swelling growth of, of the city and the constant pressures, particularly in this area, of you know, poor uh, and unsanitary um, working and living conditions in both the houses and the surrounding factories because Glasgow was such a dense city. So for more than 200 years, the Glasgow Rural Infirmary has risen to these challenges of industry, epidemics, poverty, war, and pandemic. And in that time, there have been many medical discoveries with the global impact which have been made here. And the walls of this museum, if you look around you, bear witness to both the remarkable women and men whose innovations, dedications, and discoveries helped change the course of medical history, both in Glasgow, Scotland, and further afield in the world. Um, so you have men like Joseph Lister, who is incredibly important. So you can see his portrait over, over there, which interestingly enough, and I appreciated that when I walked up to it earlier, is by the great American um, illustrator and artist, Norman Rockwell. So, so, and that was a, a, a tribute to him on, his, um, on the, the centenary of his discovery. So, um, right at the, the, the top of Rockwell's career. So, it's fascinating to see something like that. So, and he, of course, jo- Joseph Lister was this great pioneer of antiseptic surgery. So, and revolutionized his craft while working here at the Glasgow Royal um, Infirmary. So, and what he was doing was taking, um, kind of, he was inspired by Louis Pasteur. And so he was um, taking those kind of ideas, and this is kind of one of these great Glasgow things. You see it through various people in Glasgow. They take ideas from elsewhere, they adapt them, and then they revolutionize them. And Lister is straight out of the same mold. And what he does is by washing and dressing surgical wounds with carbolic acid, he thereby introduces this new concept of kind of cleanliness in, um, in surgery. And thereby saves thousands, countless lives across the world. And it's the basis for modern infection control. So then you've got other people like um, Rebecca Strong, who was um, the Glasgow Royal Infirmary's um, first matron and who trained under um, Florence Nightingale. So, you know, incredibly important and is, is important for kind of establishing the whole idea of how you train nurses. Um, And all of that was done here. And she is, um, there's a great interview with her um, on her centenary in the the Glasgow Herald. And it's talking, she she describes herself as a troublesome woman because, you know, when she got her teeth into a problem, she kept going with it and saying, you know, looking for the next solution beyond here. So she's extremely interesting too. And she was important for both the training nursing and also because of the fact that she insisted on the building of a separate nursing wing as part of the hospital because prior to that, the nurses would just have to have sleep in amongst the the patients. Um, So again, that's absolutely key in the kind of development of nursing. So, and other things, if the, the, the more that we understand about how much these walls could tell us, it's all of these other uplifting stories from kind of our disturbing times reminding us of human enterprise and ingenuity and what that can achieve and so to help peel back some of these kind of layers of history and tell the story of this kind of great hospital it is a privilege and a pleasure to introduce our two speakers this evening Dr Hilary Olson who's a consultant rheumatologist so you're dealing with joints nerve conditions and um, Dr. Kate Stevens, who is a consultant nephrologist, if I pronounced that correctly, good, um, which is specializing in kidney diseases, both of whom work at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary and are trustees of the Friends of the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, a charity which was established in May 2020, so during the first lockdown. So just two years later, they opened the Friends of the Glasgow Royal Infirmary Museum, who officially launched on the 31st of May, 2022. So you can almost smell the paint, obviously. Um, So the space that we we are in celebrates the contribution that Glasgow Royal Infirmary has made to medicine, surgery, and nursing throughout the world. So there's gonna be a great deal to talk about as we work our way through the podcast. And we also want to give you, the audience, a chance to to ask questions too, which we will do at the end of the programme and hopefully we'll learn a little more about the inspiration for the museum itself. So first off question number one, the charity was established early in the pandemic so and work on the museum began in earnest during lockdown so how did that come about and would you like to tell us how and why you both became involved in this?
1: So, I'll take this question first Kate so Um, The Royal Infirmary is an institution that's been around for 228 years. Of course, it's got an enormous history behind it. And when Kate and I walk around the hospital, there are numerous dedications to the people that have walked these corridors before us. There's the brass plaques in the central block entrance for Lister, and McEwan, Strong and McIntyre. We have buildings named after pioneers in the hospital. And if you look a little more closely in the hospital, there's some more unusual items to reflect a bygone era. So in our sub-basement, we still have the original hooks for the horses. And um, there's the old auction tanks in the basement. And if you venture up, and some of my juniors have been up to the seventh floor, there's the old consultant dining room where consultants were served wine and beer with their lunch and dinner with <coughs> tablecloths and silverware. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> Um, so basically there's an amazing history associated with this, with this building. So about seven or eight years ago, John Stewart, who's a former chief nurse at the Royal and one of our trustees, he came up with the concept of Friends of Glasgow Royal Infirmary because he felt it was important that we should share this history with the rest of the world. And um, Marvin, myself and Kate joined in with the, the sort of campaign to try and bring Friends of Glasgow Royal Infirmary to the fore. And, you know, initially when we talked about museum, people thought we were a bit mad trying to open a museum in a working hospital. And people gave us great sort of support and um, encouragement. But it was really hard to get it off the ground for the first few years. And then in 2020, we thought, well, let's register Friends of GRI as a charity with the, the regulators, because as a charity, you can get funding from other resources that weren't available without being a charitable status. Um, so that, that was what we did first of all, and then we embraced social media. Um, Kate is our chief Twitter and Instagram <laughs> feeder. I think she's tweeted as it's many very, very tweets helpful. as we have followers, about two thousand eight hundred. <laughs> so that really catapulted us into you know people you know wanting to know what we were about. And um, because of COVID restrictions in 2020, we couldn't really have sort of in-house, face-to-face celebrations of our former staff, so we ran some virtual events in the form of webinars and a virtual tour and a webinar celebrating Lister and the various women that worked at the Royal. And we were overwhelmed by the support and interest that we had at that stage. We then got some funding from the Scottish Society of History of Medicine, Friends of Glasgow Museums, and... The endowment fund in the hospital very kindly gave us the funds to refurbish this space. So what we're in just now, what you've said, is the original medical block entrance. um, But it then moved over to the centre block entrance and this room really became a storage area for medical records. And it was really in a very poor state of repair when we found it. And um, it's just lovely to be in it now with people who are interested in the history of the hospital. And as you see, we opened on the 31st of May, 2022.
0: Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's great because you have such a wonderful view over the Cathedral Precinct from here, so it's it's so funny to think that this would just have been a storage room. Yeah. Yeah, particularly when there's a statue of Queen Victoria right bang over your entrance. I know. (laughs) It does seem kind of a bit of a wasted opportunity. Um, Okay, so um, tell us about the the hospital itself and and how did it grow and kind of, you know, what does uh, historic hospital say about life in the city? Um, you know, Glasgow Rural Infirmary is, is a landmark with physical and symbolic significance within Glasgow. And, you know, maybe we can explore some of those key developments in 1794 and how they relate to what was happening in the rest of the city. you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah, so sure. Okay. Um, so with a with caveat that I'm not a historian. i <laughs> uh, do my best. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you've kind of touched on some things already. So in the 18th century, Glasgow as a city grew rapidly and there was an urgent need to build an infirmary or or a hospital to accommodate the expanding population. Um, There was also a desire to have a hospital beside the university and at that stage, the university was beside the cathedral. So a group got together, so men, as was traditional in those days, and women, um, so they were the the founders um, and they planned this new infirmary. So it was funded by subscribers, so subscribers could be wealthy city merchants or businesses or the Royal College of Physicians and surgeons in Glasgow. And the first meeting was in 1787. So at that point, they um, they didn't actually ask Robert Adam to design the building initially. Um, They asked a man called William Blackburn. So William Blackburn was a famous... um, architect who designed prisons um, and he fortunately or unfortunately died and so was unable to design our hospital. I'm not sure what it would have looked like if a <laughs> prison architect had designed it. Um, so Robert Adam was, was brought in um, and he, he designed this or, or his designs were very grand, they were very ambitious for the Royal Infirmary and it said that there was a degree of one-upmanship because the other Scottish infirmaries in Aberdeen, Dumfries and Edinburgh were nothing like as, as grand as, as Robert Adam's designs were here so the old kind of Glasgow-Edinburgh rivalry was true even mm-hmm, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first designs were deemed to be a little bit too um, too impressive, and modifications were necessary, they were too expensive. But despite that, the, the finished article was really magnificent. So, you know, exactly as you've heard already, this is where the Adam building was, and it, you know, had this wonderful entrance bay looking out onto Cathedral Precinct, and it sort of Yes, the resistance was the dome on the top of it. So it had this huge dome, and it was 40 feet from the, the floor to the ceiling in the dome, and housed under the dome was the operating theatre. So you had lots and lots of light coming in through this dome onto the operating table, which was great for the surgeon who was doing the operation, but maybe less so for the patient who, as you'll hear um, as we move on, was usually awake. There was no anaesthetic, um, so they were lying there full daylight. I'm not sure it was great that they could see everything that was going on. Um, and the other thing about the, the dome is that um, so it was at the top of the, the hospital um, the operating theatre and Monday to Saturday it, it was a functioning theatre and um, patients were carried on these sort of gurneys up the stairs screaming often, no, no pain relief um, presumably part of the reason it was on the top floor was because maybe the rest of the hospital couldn't hear if they were at the top um, and then on Sundays it became the chapel, so it went from being a sort of horror house to the <laughs> serene chapel on Sundays um, so the other um, big point of, of excellence that's often commented on um, is the fact that there was iron bedsteads in the new Glasgow Royal Infirmary, but there were only wooden ones in Edinburgh, so that was a, <laughs> a, a marker of, uh, of pride. So the hostel, as you say, opened in 1794. There were eight wards with 12 beds. Um, there's never enough beds, the same is true today. Um, half the wards were unfurnished when it opened up initially, so there was a lack of funds, a lack of beds, a, a theme that I'm afraid is fairly consistent even now. So, gradually over the years, lots of different wings were added to the hospital. So, in 1829, they added um, a detached block, which was the fever hospital. Mm-hmm. So, dealing with um, outbreaks of infectious diseases in you know, a very overcrowded city was a massive problem for, for the managers. Uh, it was hugely challenging. And they had these great plans to design this separate fever hospital. Um, but there was lots of hiccups, there wasn't money, and so A little bit like what happens in today's world there was temporary accommodation put up to deal with epidemics Um, at one point there was a shed in the in the grounds of the hospital but eventually um, although they had to sort of scale back their original plans they they planned 220 beds but eventually got 120 they managed to get this fever hospital up so um, it sat detached from the rest of the hospital, but in the hostel grounds and actually it wasn't big enough and during subsequent epidemics they had to put more temporary accommodation up in the in the grounds. So in 1842, they managed to attach it to the main hospital. Um, And then in 1861, they opened this new surgical hospital. So it was all singing and dancing. It had these coal fires. It had a day ward for patients to convalesce in. Um, And it had this huge operating theatre, again, on the top floor. Um, And in the operating theatre, they had um, a sort of tiered seating area where more than 200 people could watch operations. I was... So for education, for sport, um, in in those days. So that's where Joseph Lister um, made his groundbreaking discoveries um, in 1865. And whilst Lister was um, working exhaustively on his series of antisepsis, in London, um, Florence Nightingale had embarked upon her um, great mission to um, open up or establish a training school for nurses. So it's kind of important to understand that nursing was not a profession in the early um, 1800s. It was... Basically, uh, um, it was a means of employment for people who were also rans, prostitutes, fallen women, um, it, was a, you know, it was not viewed in any favourable light whatsoever, alcoholics, um, basically people who couldn't get a job anywhere else, and society was incredibly judgmental, mm. and um, you know, it, 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 it wasn't it wasn't cool to look after sick people as a woman, particularly if these sick, sick people were men. Um, the night nurses were the worst, so they basically used to come in, steal from the patients, drink themselves into a stupor, and have to be carried out the back door in the morning. <laughs> so, in 1860, Florence Nightingale opened up the Nightingale Training School uh, for Nurses at St Thomas's Hospital in London, and she was a middle-class, respectable woman. So she gave nursing a bit more respectability. And then in 1867, so just after Lister had made his discoveries, um, Mrs Rebecca Strong enrolled at the Florence Nightingale um, Training School. So Florence Nightingale had a very high opinion of of Rebecca Strong um, and ultimately via the military hospital at Metley and in Royal Infirmary, Rebecca or Mrs Strong, I think as as she would prefer to be known, um, found herself here at Glasgow Royal Infirmary as the very first matron in 1879. So you've alluded to this already, Neil, she was um, relentless in her, her mm-hmm. goal mm-hmm. to improve standards. She perpetually sought to improve patient care. You know, she was a single mother and what she sort of achieved was, was remarkable. Um, she was highly principled and when they refused to build the nurse's home, she resigned You know, didn't think for a second that, of staying. No, I'm going if you won't build a nurse's <coughs> home. So she, she left. She felt, felt that if um, her nurses were to give the best of themselves at work, they had to have somewhere comfortable to mm-hmm. stay. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess probably with their tails between their legs, the manager is in 1887, built the nurse's home. So you can still see it, um, it's across um, diagonally from here. It's now the procurement building. So I had 85 rooms, um, I had a tennis court, a recreation room, um, and it linked to the main hospital via what was um, commonly called the chicken run. So the chicken run was essentially a large conservatory, it was 180 foot long, made of glass and it connected, as I say, the nurses' home to the main hospital. And it said that um, Matron would sit in her flat above the glass conservatory, looking down, watching the nurses when they came home, to make sure that A, they were on time, and B, they hadn't brought any men with them. Um, (laughs) And she would also make sure that when they came into the hospital for work, that they had their hats on, apparently. (laughs) Um, So um, (coughs) William McCune, Who we've not yet mentioned was a huge ally of of Rebecca Strong's, Um, and together they developed this block training scheme for nurses. That basically meant that nurses had dedicated time off the ward where they got lectures and tutorials and were educated, and then they had other blocks of time on on the ward. Um, So the preparatory school for um, nurse training opened in 1893, and this block training method has now been adopted throughout the throughout the world. So um, I think probably. Up until this opened, Rebecca Strong was more celebrated elsewhere than she was in Glasgow, where she did all this.
0: Classic but Glasgow.
2: I know, classic <laughs> Glasgow, but we are, um, we're big fans, so we're hoping to spread the word. Good, um, good. So I mentioned William McEwen. Um, so William McEwen worked under Lord Lister, mm-hmm. and he was heavily influenced by Lister's theories of, of antisepsis. Um, he was one of the most innovative surgeons of his time. He performed the first successful brain surgery operation. So if you think now, I mean, you get CT scans, you get MRI scans, if there's a problem in somebody's brain, you see it in those images. But what he did was he had a a girl who um, had epilepsy and he looked to see where the twitching was, which part of the body the twitching was coming from, and then used anatomy and physiology to identify from that where the tumour was located, went in, removed the tumour and she survived for I think eight or nine years after that. That's pretty remarkable. Um, he also invented bone grafts. Um, he founded Erskine Hospital and invented the Erskine artificial limb. Um, and um, he was also a police surgeon. So before AE he was he was a, a police surgeon. Um, and then one of the other really important things that he um, contributed was photography. So he would take photos of cases before and after, um, right. so surgical cases mm-hmm. or even just cases that he saw in the wards. And in those days, so unlike now, in beautifully scribed, um, histories, if you like, so taking people through pages and pages of the actual history of a patient. They must have had lots more time than we do. Um, and, and McEwan would, would keep these photographs with, with the cases, which, you know, beautifully illustrated and helped to educate others. Um, he also loved animals and there's a couple of stories that Helen and I are both very fond of, uh, both being dog lovers. So he had a dog called Leo, and he used to bring Leo into the hospital with him, so first example of a therapy pet. <laughs> so one day poor Leo got stolen, so there were dog stealers and he stole poor, poor old Leo. And McCune was upset <clears throat> but somebody gave him a tip off and said that they thought that Leo was um, in the shop with, with two women. So McEwan went down to the shop, sure enough there was Leo um, and the two women were there and they bought the dog from one of the, the dog stealers. So a policeman was called and the policeman basically said, okay so if the dog comes to you, McEwan, you can have him, if he doesn't he stays here. So of course the dog Went over to McEwen. McEwen took his dog. Came back to the hospital, and a few days later, one of the women came to see him, and sort of explained that her sister was unwell. They bought the dog, and she was really missing him. So William McEwen gave him the dog back. So that's nice. He had oh, a big heart. Right. However, he didn't get on with all of his colleagues. So um, <laughs> I, think was, I think he sort of caused various ructions in the in the hospital. Um, so Sir George Beetson, um, to, you know, um, he was a pioneering oncologist. So the Beetson, you've all heard of the, of the Beetson. Mm-hmm. And so it comes from Sir George Beatson, so pioneering oncologist. And he also was involved in um, St Andrew's Ambulance and the Red Cross. And McEwen, in an extremely derogatory fashion, used to refer to him as that ambulance man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they both worked for Lister. I don't know whether or not there's a bit of rivalry because of, because of that. Um, so, I mean, there's, lot, you know, there's lots and lots of other kind of key developments um, that, we, that we can talk about. But we don't have, don't have time. So I guess that you know, towards the end of the 19th century, the older buildings were falling into a state of disrepair mm-hmm. um, and then coinciding with the um, Jubilee of Queen Victoria, James Miller, as you said, designed this building, built kind of on the site of the Adam building. there was a lot of uh, controversy in 1927 when they pulled down the Lister wards, um, so still to this day we're both a bit bitter that they pulled down the Lister wards. So is,
0: is that when the plaque dates from then? Yeah. It's just like the most difficult plaque to see in Glasgow, because yeah, it's, it's like such tucked a behind shame. the bus, yeah, bus exactly. stop, yeah. you know, behind the railings. It's such a shame because it's beautiful.
2: I know. So they built a lecture theatre which is no longer in use on the site, but there was, you know, there was international outcry when they said they were going to pull down the Lister ward, but... They pulled it down. The
1: lecture theatre is our next big plan. Yeah, that is our right. big. We're going to have a <laughs> bit of avatar in the yeah, lecture yeah. theatre. Classic. Um, so, then mm-hmm. in
2: you know, 1948, the hostel became part of NHS Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, the second reconstruction started in the 1970s, and over the course of, of the sort of years, various bits have been added and, and removed. Um, so, I guess there's a couple of other people that, that it's important to mention. So, James McCune Smith, so he's the first mm-hmm. African American to get a medical degree. So, in America, they refused to admit him to medical school so he came to the University of Glasgow when he got his degree in 1835 um, no 1935 191835. I told you I wasn't a historian <laughs> uh, 1835 um, and he so he spent time as a medical student here and then McIntyre you know, established the very first X-ray department in the mm-hmm, world mm-hmm. This opened fascinating in the late, yeah 1890s yep. Um, so, you know, right here in the Royal Infirmary, this was the very first, actually, department in the world. Um, Ian Donald um, pioneered the use of ultrasound in yes. yeah, 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 um, very interesting pregnancy. story behind that. Yeah. So, exactly. So yes. he, he helped to use ultrasound to diagnose foetal abnormality in the 1950s. Right. Um, and then we're proud, um, I guess, because we know, we know Prof Jackie Taylor, so she in 2018 became the very first um, mm-hmm, woman mm-hmm. president of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, so a long time coming. So we were delighted when that happened.
0: Great, fantastic. How did, I mean, obviously the Adam building was sacrificed to build this. How did this building survive? Because obviously you've got, I mean, this is where the, where the Glasgow Royal Infirmary is interesting because it had three great Scottish architects involved in it. You've got Robert Adam, then you've got James Miller, and you've got Basil Spence, yeah. who does the blocks to yeah. to the east. But how did this survive? Because when given that the surrounding area with the exception of the cathedral, is pretty much levelled for the motorway ring road coming through and then the whole of townhead just disappears. How did this get spared?
2: So, do you know, I don't know how it got spared, but I'm pleased it did. Yes. Um, and I think you'll find us change the railings if they say they're going <laughs> to take it down. Um, yeah, so I, do, I, think, I think probably partly because they just kept kind of adding bits on. So at no point did anybody decide to reconstruct this part. Mm. I think initially they had much grander plans for the Sir Basil Spence building, but that didn't materialise, so they, yeah. they did bits of it. Um, yes. i will tell you a bit more about that in a second, but they did, they did bits of it and um, then you know, the plans didn't come to fruition probably because they ran out of money. And, yes. um, yeah. So they, you know, they attached mm-hmm. this part of the hostel with a link corridor, It's um, mm-hmm. kind of like a floating corridor which attaches this building to the, to the newer buildings, um, and we're still here. <clears throat> So
0: I suppose it's a, it's a testament to James Miller's skill as an architect, he'd never sure. got hospital mm-hmm. before he built this, mm-hmm. and that he'd obviously mastered his brief so well that it's still in you know, use yep. more than a century later and still yep. functions mm-hmm. perfectly fine yep, as a hospital, which is you know quite a tribute yep. to the man of his skill. Okay. um, Going going back to other issues, obviously it's called the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. So can you tell us more about the links to royalty? I mean, obviously Queen Victoria, this is the Jubilee building as part of it. So she's sitting above the doorway um, in this great kind of rather stern um, sculpture by um, Albert Hemstock Hodge, who tended to collaborate with um, James Miller quite often. Um, and there are also links to Edward the Seventh as well, who opened the hospital. Um, so, but you know, can you can you tell us more about that kind of the the, the connections to the royal, and to the royals, and um, the, the the kind of the impact they have on medicine um, as we come to the twenty first century?
1: So, you've already um, mentioned that the site of the royal is the previous site of the bishop's castle from the twelfth century. Um, and William Wallace spent some time at the that's Bishop's right. Castle yes. and Mary Queen of Scots and her supporters tried to take the castle in 1570. Um, but the royal itself was given its royal charter in 1791 um, and that this bit of land was, was granted to the hospital by the Crown. So that's probably the earliest kind of link with, with the royals. Um, so basically the... 1914, King George and Queen Mary officially opened the Miller Building and they opened the former Children's Hospital York Hill at the same time and the story goes that when Queen Mary came in to open the hospital, she was meant to turn left to go to Ward 1 but she turned right and she opened Ward 2 instead. So this is why the Royal doesn't have a Ward 1 because she didn't want to correct (laughs) Queen Mary. For turning the wrong way. <laughs> 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 and Queen Mary also gifted this beautiful bookcase uh, to the hospital, mm-hmm. containing some books. I don't know what happened to the books that were in the bookcase. Um, and this is why we use this bookcase to illustrate some of the connections with the royal family over the years. So in eight, 1986, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, they came and opened the Queen Elizabeth Building mm-hmm. of Alexandra Parade. And in the bookcase, we have the visitor's book with Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth's signatures. Um, we're quite proud of that. And the Princess Royal Maternity opened in 2001, having moved from Rotten Row. Mm-hmm. And the Jubilee Building, which houses A&E and plastic surgery following the closure of Canisburn Hospital, was named for the Golden Jubilee, and that opened in 2002. Now, more recently, this year, we were awarded... Um, uh, green, a queen's green canopy tree to celebrate the platinum jubilee. So the hospital is going to receive a native tree to Scotland. I'm not sure what it's going to be. I hope it's not something too huge like a Douglas fir or something because we plan to plant it out in the garden just to the right of the steps right, so that okay. you can actually see it from Castle Street and we'll have a mm-hmm. plaque mm-hmm. telling the public what it's all about. And then, as you said, Queen Victoria, she watches over all of us that come into the museum. And last year we, we sort of restored the, the lighting outside so that we can light her up in different colours at all times of the year.
0: Very good. Okay, um, so next up to, to touch on royalty, brings us to obviously the, the, one of the key figures in the history of the development of the hospital, Joseph Lister himself. So, and later on in his life, he would become the senior su- surgeon to Queen Victoria and also to Edward VII. Um, but his pioneering work in Glasgow transformed the survival chances of any patient undergoing surgery. So, can you tell us how Lister made medical history in 1865 with his treatment of um, uh, James Greenlee's, you know, this young boy who, you know, most unfortunately had this compound fracture because of a car going over his leg so can you tell us all about that and this kind of great breakthrough which ends up being so kind of reported in the Lancet
2: and um, yep so I think that you have to go back to Victorian times to understand the significance of this I think that we all sort of brand about oh you know Lister developed the theory of antisepsis it's, it's so important I mean this would be such a different world if Lister hadn't made those discoveries so if you think about, particularly after COVID, if you think about a world where there's no hand washing, there's no gloves, there's no cleanliness. So in the Victorian times, that was the reality. And um, people thought the infection came from miasma or bad bad air. Mm-hmm. And you know, the dirtier and bloodier a surgeon's gown was, the more lauded he was and the prouder he felt.
0: That's just so horrible. So, thing you know, they used about. to wander about
2: the place with these absolutely filthy, you know, they were like filthy, these people, but that was, that was a real mark of he's a great surgeon. Um, and you know, this is an era where there wasn't anaesthetic. And so, a surgeon's skill really came down to how quickly he could work. So, remember, they didn't have lots of these modern treatments that, w- that we have. So, often they would be amputating things. So, Lister, when he was um, a, a student, watched a, another surgeon, Robert Liston, so a similar name. Um, so Liston uh, was a bit of a performer and he um, considered himself to be the fastest knife in the West. So Lister was in a, a, you know, an operating theater watching him with other people. And you know, he would, Liston sort of theatrically got out his knife, this poor man who's conscious, about to have a limb amputated. And he kind of said, time me, gentlemen, before he chopped the, the leg off. And I mean, it took seconds, which is, I guess is what you wanted at the time. That's not all that happens now, I can assure you. <laughs> so, um, so Lister, um, so he married um, a, a lady called Agnes Syme. So Agnes Syme was the daughter of James Syme, a famous surgeon from Edinburgh. Um, and they, they worked sort of, um, together. So Agnes doesn't often get as much credit as we think she should. But um, she was really crucial to Lister's experiments and his research. Um, So, they they, they did lots of of experiments and research together. So, one of the things they did together as a kind of slight aside was they they took chloroform and administered it to each other to see how much was the correct dose of chloroform. It's pretty sporting of Agnes. Um, (laughs) So, you know, Agnes was a botanist to trade and she would do these beautiful illustrations of the experiments that they did and and Mm -hmm. these these lovely notebooks. So, I think she was fairly instrumental to his discoveries. So, Lister was always fascinated by science and medicine, particularly microscopy, in particular microscopy, um, which he'd learned from his father. Um, And he he looked at inflammation, so it was was fairly well-known that inflammation sort of preceded many of these post-operative complications that that they saw, including including sepsis. So as you'd said, he was introduced to the work of of Louis Pasteur, and that kind of highlighted that living organisms caused putrefaction. So Lister kind of used that information along with the work that he had um, undertaken, and he realised that contamination was the vector of infection. So he realised that there was contamination from people's hands, from instruments, from their, um, their gowns. And although he didn't appreciate um, the sort of full extent of germs, he didn't have any concept that there was lots of bacteria and and viruses and things, he did realise that these things were contaminated in order to try and reduce post-operative gangrene and and sepsis, you had to get rid of this contamination. So he basically uh, started using um, phenol, or carbolic acid, and he invented this thing called a carbolic acid spray. So the original apparatus for that, the Hunterian Museum have in, in Glasgow. And he essentially started spraying everything that Mm -hmm. came in within.
0: Is that what's in the background? Yes. Exactly. Okay. So everything
2: that came within a sort of few centimetres of Lister got sprayed with his carbolic acid spray. So his first documented success was James Greenlees. So James Greenlees was a a poor wee 11-year-old boy who was um, on high street and got knocked down by a cart and had a compound fracture of his leg. So that basically means that the bone was sticking out through the skin. So Lester got its carbolic acid spray and meticulously applied it to the, the wounds and the dressings. And the dressings were cleaned, so um, you know, bearing in mind that previously dressings would often be reused between different patients. This was very kind of out there. <laughs> um, so basically after six weeks, James Greenlees was cured and walked out of the hospital. So um, Lister then started instructing everybody who worked with him to wash their hands pre- and post-operatively, to use the carbolic acid spray, to wear gloves. All the instruments were washed, and he also cleverly realised that the porous handles of the instrument were probably also mm-hmm, harbouring mm-hmm. bugs, so he got rid of them. Um, so that all sounds like, wow, imagine anybody thinking otherwise, but he was completely mocked. So yeah, people thought this man was nuts, you know, yeah. and he was heavily criticised. But he did have some supporters, fortunately for think all of us um, and so very gradually as his work was replicated it became clear that you know he you know kind of as it says up there that he was the greatest surgical benefactor to mankind so he completely revolutionized mortality rate surgery um, and and the practice of, of medicine throughout the, the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Incredible um, so what about you know you've got all of these other pictures and people on the walls we've touched on some of them what about the other Pioneers who passed through, um, you know, the, the, the buildings on the site. So you've mentioned um, John McIntyre and uh, you know the world's first X-ray department, um, and you've mentioned Will McEwen, who carried out the first successful brain surgery, Rebecca Strong with how you know um, the the training of nurses. So can you explain why Glasgow managed to produce? so many great pioneers, and I think all of this is related to like, industry in the city as well, with all the great pioneers in the industry. Glasgow just seems to have been able to do some of that. Can you explain why they're able to do that? Because they're kind of great disruptors of their age, you know, of very much being this disruptor. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, I can't actually. I mean, I think um, it's, I think their achievements speak for themselves and, mm. you know, just they were so um, sure about what they believed in that They just carried that through, and it all came to fruition. Um, I think there's a couple of other people that you can add to the list that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them is a a doctor called O.H. Maver, and his illustrations are on this wall over on Mm -hmm. the side Mm -hmm. of the museum. So O.H. Maver, he worked as a resident at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, but he also um, is uh, called James Bridey. He works under the pseudonym James Bridey. And he's a playwright and a caricaturist. And what's interesting about O.H. Maver or James Bridey is that he was the co founder of the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also invented Daff Friday, the big ball in Christmas time at Glasgow University. So we. Um, he he did lots of these illustrations of characters who worked at the Royal Infirmary. Mm -hmm. As I say, we've got four up there, but we actually um, were given a selection of 14 of them. And they highlight the quirks and sometimes the disagreements with the managers at the Mm -hmm. Royal Mm -hmm. of that time. And I had a very nice uh, meeting with the Friends of Glasgow Museums who'd given us a grant and they came in and told me that their founder, Tom Honeyman, was also a co-founder of the Citizens with OH Maver. So that was a nice link. Um, The other person worth mentioning is David Cuthbertson. So we have a brass Mm -hmm. plaque of David Cuthbertson in the center block entrance, Uh and he was a clinical biochemist. And he led the department of clinical biochemistry at the Royal Infirmary, but also um, worked at the Rowett Institute, which looked at the sort of investigation of human metabolism and nutrition. Mm -hmm. He wrote lots of books, published lots of scientific articles regarding the metabolic response to trauma and infection. And he was quite good at performing experiments. And one of the ones that was very interesting was that he wanted to assess whether the metabolic response to trauma was due to the trauma itself or due to the fact that you were confined to a bed for all the time that you were recovering. So he recruited medical students to stay in bed for two weeks with their legs splinted, and he paid them two pounds a week to do that. So I don't know whether that would pass the ethics committee now <laughs> or I don't think medical students would do that experiment. Um, but he loved his job so much that even when he retired, um, the Royal Infirmary created an honorary position for him up until the day he died mm. at 89.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. I, I wonder whether it's kind of because you know, not just the world, but Glasgow in general, that it's like a node for attracting people who are interested and you know, are enthusiastic and passionate about their subject and are willing to engage in the kind of broader world. Because with, with Lister, part of that whole connection with um, Louis Pasteur is he, he's, he's talking to the chemist Thomas Anderson down at the university because they're walking into work together every day. And that's where it comes from. And it might be something to do with kind of soft networks. Like that? Because yeah, and I think it's a similar story with the um, uh, ultrasound. And it was, it was, as um, uh, Donald McIntyre um, going to a factory, and it was because one of his patients saying, Why don't you come along and see what my factory can do with things like that? And that's the kind of connection. I wonder whether it's Rika like moments like that and those kind of soft networks that you actually need.
1: Yeah. And I think city. this kind of soft networking is so important even in today's modern medicine. When you walk down corridors, you meet your colleagues, you share ideas in a, in, a, in a sort of informal setting. And I think we've lost a little bit of that with the fact that everyone's on their emails and Teams meetings. So I think that would be useful to get that back.
0: Yes, very much, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, um, can we talk about the exhibits? Because you've got some fantastic exhibits here. I'm particularly admiring these, are they cathode ray tubes? Mm-hmm. I seem to recall stuff like that yeah. from my chemistry <laughs> days in school. So, which are which are rather impressive. So, um, you know, you have this kind of fantastic collection, and you know, every good museum is founded on good collections. But where did you go about finding all of this kind of all of these artifacts? How did you kind of bring them all together, and what were your sources for doing that?
2: So, um, a few sources. So, um, people have donated things, which is very kind. So, lots of people who have worked here or who have had relatives who've worked here have. Um, Come forward and, and offered us things. So, um, we've got old badges. Uh, we've got old tens machines. We've got them um, one of the first um machines used to deliver electroconvulsive therapy for um, or in psychiatry. So lo- lots of people have come forward with things, which has been great. Um, we are well known in the hospital. Myself, Hilary, Morvin, and John for wandering about and. Taking things that we think that people are not, uh, not maybe are, aren't aware of, of how important they, they are, and um, we may have one December put on high vis jackets, hard hats, and torches, and gone creeping about in the attics of the hospital and uh, identified several quite interesting things that some of which are now on display in here. Very good. So I think there wasn't some there wasn't really somewhere for for all these nice things to be kept. So there's lots mm-hmm. of things lying about the hospital. Um, you know, paintings, etc., cetera, that uh, we've managed to amass, archive, and let people see. Mm-hmm. And we've also been known to um, have a wee, uh, wee look at eBay, and we, some things in here that people perhaps didn't realise the significance of them. So we have um, one of the original um, programmes from, from the university with um, all the different lectures, including Lister, uh, Geirner, various other people. Um, so we got that on eBay for £10. So, uh, it's not here. so, it's a better home than someone who didn't
0: appreciate its value. Very good. Um, and the other thing that interests me as well when we're looking at exhibits and everything is, you know, the links between um, the Glasgow um, Royal Infirmary and other kind of um, hospitals or medical institutions within the vicinity. So, you've obviously got the blind asylum, which still survives up the way with um, Europe's um, only five-sided um, clock. Um, which is now incorporated into um, the, the, the car park, but used to be part of the the hospital campus. So you've got that. And then you also had the great Rotten Row Hospital, which is the Glasgow Royal Maternity Hospital. And it's the exhibit sitting at the back, which is that fantastic fireplace. You know, can you, can you tell us a bit more about that? And also I'm wondering whether you can answer a question, which we were discussing in the office, which was how on earth did the Rotten Ruhr hospital end up on that site. Why would anyone build a maternity hospital at the top of such a steep hill? <laughs> it seems incredibly selfish. Men mm-hmm. yeah, so. <laughs> built at the top of the steep
1: hill. Yeah. Well I don't think I can answer the second question, but I can tell you a bit about, you know, the fireplace and Please do. Then um, <laughs> what happened was we have um, we're, we're quite pally with all the kind of porters and the security guys now in the hospital. And it was one of them, a guy called Ziggy, who said, Dr. Wilson, I've got something you might like up in the seventh floor. And he brought down this old dusty fireplace. And I said, <laughs> what on earth is it? And it was the fireplace that was at Rotten Row Hospital right. um, before it was demolished in 2001. So what it has is it has the signatures of all the kind of people that worked at Rotten dating away back to 1918. And we've wow. also got some door frames with similar etchings. And what we'd really love to do is to you know, get a research student to look at all these names, because I think some of them have gone on to be very famous obstetricians right, of their right. time. Um, we also have an original letter awarding Rotten a Royal Charter, and we've also got several pieces of medical equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, the very nice lady called Belinda, who gave us the OH Maver caricatures, She is the granddaughter of Professor Monroe Kerr. Mm -hmm. And he was a very kind of prestigious obstetrician in Glasgow. He was the um, first Muirhead Chair of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. And as well as these lovely caricatures, she also um, found somebody that owned his original top hat in a lovely brown leather case with his initials on it. So we've got that as well.
0: Very good. Okay, so that kind of brings us back to the whole kind of... um, topic and the role of historic hospitals and medical museums. And the role is obviously still in use, but there are many historic hospitals around the country and in Glasgow in particular, which are, which are no longer in use. And obviously a key issue in this kind of day and age with climate change is how do we go about retrofitting buildings like this to give them a kind of further use in the, in the future? And you know, what, what can we do to encourage um, people to adapt buildings like this that have these fantastic histories that you don't necessarily want to lose. I mean, it would be criminal if this building was demolished. But we have, you know, in the city of things like the Victoria Infirmary, I was quite heavily involved in a campaign to try and save as much of that as we could. But unfortunately, we were totally at the mercy of the developers because it had no statutory protection for the entire campus, with the exception of the one administration building, which is B-listed. Everything else was up for grabs. And so it was very much at the, you know, the whim of the developer as to whether or not it was going to be saved, which was kind of a shame when you look at things like the uh, Royal Samaritan Hospital for Women in Govan Hill, which is such a beautiful campus, which has been entirely saved, thankfully, and put to a new use. So, you know, what, what, what can we do to kind of encourage people to kind of look after and maintain these buildings in the longer term? Any thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think it's difficult. And, you know, as you said, we've, you know, we've lost the Victoria, we've lost the Western, or we've lost bits of, of Stop Hill. Um, although obviously Stop Hill when it was gifted to the city, the deal was that there had to be a hospital on the hmm. uh, campus, mm-hmm. so there is, some some of the old buildings are still there but and, and there obviously is a new hospital on, on site, but it's very much a modern building. The Western when it was pulled down, the deal was that the university got the yes. land back, yeah. and so they've done what they have, have with it. Um, you know, so I guess in an ideal world, we would keep all of these buildings. We would have lots of money, and we would have them all in condition where people could go and use them, and whatever they were repurposed as. So you you, know, you might have some as nice restaurants or meeting areas or whatever. But I guess that's not practical. But in Glasgow, we do have the Royal, um, and you know, the, the Royal is a functioning hospital, um, and you know, it's got to serve its population effectively. And so things need to progress. You know, if things didn't progress. We'd still be, you know, sitting in a in a room with an you know, a surgeon wearing a dirty gown and using a, a dirty knife and asking someone to time him while he chopped off your leg. So, you know, progress is not a bad thing. But I think you're absolutely right. We do have to try and make sure that, um, particularly for us, this space, So it's parts of the hostel are B-listed, although there are ways of, of getting around the, the sort of B-listing mm-hmm, if places mm-hmm. are not safe. I mean, there are some parts of um, some of these hostels that we've mentioned that were in such bad states of, of disrepair repair that, it was going to be virtually impossible to restore them without, you know, more money than than, um, yes. yeah, yeah. than we have. Yeah. And, and you know, I, some, sometimes I think it's a balance. So, you know, healthcare is important. The NHS is great. It's free at the point of delivery. And probably if you ask most people, well, maybe your heart would say, oh, you know, I want to keep the Victoria Infirmary if the choice was that or it was you know having better you know, facilities within a hospital to treat patients you know, it's quite it's quite hard to, to justify that.
0: it is it is a difficult one i think um, what i'm interested in is where the nhs goes with things like this because i know that the nhs is interested in things like local place plans and that the and this is um, where i'm very interested in the work of harry burns and he thinks that a lot of what happened to glasgow in the 1960s and 70s with the demolition of whole parts of the city had a real bad impact on the kind of the psyche of the city and Glaswegians in general because you're seeing your city being destroyed and you're, it's dislocating and you know suddenly having that whole loss of memory and associations with places that you grew up and were attached to actually really does damage the psyche of the people and so it's how you deal with issues like that so there is perhaps something to look at there I don't know. But- I, mean, I think, that, I think
2: that's, that's definitely definitely true and I think you know if. You know, if the, if the royal was to become a victim and to be dem- this building was to be demolished, I think there, there, it would um, affect a lot of people.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. It does kind of, yeah, yeah it seeps, something about the, the building yeah. or buildings in general, people have an affection for and it seeps into yep. the kind of the feel of a building as well. You know, you can tell how loved something is. Yeah. So yeah, something like what you've done here is an example of how much you love the building. So oh, we've
2: got grand plans
0: <laughs> <laughs> an even bigger museum <laughs> that's what it be adapted to so okay so bearing that in mind what next and you know I'm really impressed by your logo which is really beautiful logo and I'd love to know who designed it because they've done a really fantastic job on it um but all it obviously it circles around the bee in the center and you know by the entrance you've got a jar of honey which is a big clue so can you tell us more about your your plans for a, a bee garden and um you know the idea of um you know the walk through health heritage and honey Sounds really fascinating. Can you tell us something about that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, well certainly in terms of the future of, of this museum, as you said, we're only open two days a week for two hours on a Tuesday and a Thursday. And although we've been open for seven weeks, we are number 73 on TripAdvisor out of 466 oh, things to do in Glasgow. So that's not Very bad. Um, and we're hoping maybe to go for a museum accreditation at some point with the assistance of Ross McGregor and Morven at the Royal College Heritage Committee. And we'd like to extend our opening hours to match the other tourist offerings in Cathedral Precinct. But because we've got volunteers that run the museum, that's going to take a bit of time. So we're hopeful. We've got this far. And I think, you know, we're um, confident we're going to, to get there. We're going to have quite a lot of um, events. So this is the first of the evening events that we've done. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're quite pleased with the way that the acoustics are and the seating and everything. So that's we're going to have space. some other events, including Ian Bone, who's a um, retired neurosurgeon. He's going to talk about Ian McEwan. Right. And um, we're also going to have a nice lady coming and talking about the medicinal benefits of honey in November on the day before our honey sale in November. So she's Nikki Biddis from Napier's. And she's going to come and give us a talk. So we're going to extend by having events, not just having people coming into the museum. And then, obviously, the, the bees, they are really exciting. Um, in terms of the design of our logo, it was Graven Images. Ah, right. And okay. Graven yeah, Images yes, very kindly like um, did the logo for free for us, I mean, a girl called Gillian. And um, our bee is at the centre with the medicinal plants surrounding the bee because we felt we wanted the logo to look a bit more modern for the more junior Mm -hmm, members mm -hmm. of the hospital. It would be more engaging with them rather than just sticking with the original GRI logo, which is quite old-fashioned now. Um, So initially we had two beehives and they were um, owned by two professional beekeepers. And then a third beekeeper came on board, who is Dean Parker, who is the chef at Celentano's the Restaurant and Cathedral Hives. Yes, yeah, 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 which um, has a fantastic reputation. Yes, so he was delighted to have his hive there. So if you go and have a meal there, you might get GRI honey (laughs) on the menu. (laughs) And then the fourth hive is Kate and I. We've just become um, beekeepers by doing our course at the Ayrshire uh, Beekeeper Society uh, this summer. So, yeah, so we'll have... um, a nice uh, event with lots and lots of honey for sale in November, <laughs> and um, and I'm going to let Kate talk about the walk because this is our big grand plan for um, extending the museum offering.
2: Yeah, so um, so we we want to we want to create what we're we're calling the Royal Walk, a stroll through health heritage and honey. So essentially, you would come out of the museum. So it's a, it's a small space, and we plan, as Hilary said, to have you know rotating. Exhibitions and things, but we'd like to have a more permanent, larger ex- exhibit. So, you would know, come out the um, front onto Cathedral Precinct, and um, at the side we've got two um, reasonably sized areas that we're going to um, transform into medicinal herbs and plants and have herb gardens. So we've had a bit of um, input, as mentioned from Lisa at Botanics. Um, so she's head of the sort of horticulture co- course there, and she's been really helpful. Our um, Queen's Green Canopy Tree is going to go at the, the front there for everybody to see. Um, and we're going to have some benches and things where people can sit. So you'll come out and you'll turn left and um, you'll go down, sort of with the cathedral on your right hand side, and you'll go around, come up beside our bees, which are, I guess, this way, so diagonal from here, our four hives. Um, they are, you can see them, but you can't get in. don't want anybody to get stung. Um, so we'll to see our bees at work. And then you'll come up the site of the old chicken run. So you remember the conservatory. So we're going to call that Rebecca Strong Alley. Um, and you'll then be able to go around the back of the hospital um, where we have other areas that we'll, we'll do with probably a Wildflower Meadow, other trees, medicinal plants, etc. Come out onto Wishart Street, go along past the necropolis. Um, so there's lots of incumbents in the necropolis who have links to the Royal Infirmary. So um, what we'll we'll do with this walk, which we'll finish back in Cathedral Precinct, is we'll have plaques. um, So talking about the history of nursing, probably, initially. um, So there's a lot to say about the history of nursing. We've only touched on on a little bit of it. So starting off with that, um, then a tribute to the North Parish um, Washing Green Society. So that um, was essentially a charity that's still in existence today. You can become a lifelong member for 50 pounds. um, And they essentially give money to um, people in need and they had they had a washing green for people who could come and do their washing so that was just um adjacent to where we are just now so they've been in to see us and they would like to commission a big plaque so we're going to have that as part of our our walk we'll have information about the hair and information about the um you the, the flowers and things on the way around we're hoping to have a, an orchard So we're hoping that we'll be able to have some plum trees and apple trees and maybe we'll expand from honey to chutney and other things, <laughs> cider um, yeah. Who knows? Um, would,
0: would Rebecca strong yeah. approve of that? I'm sure she
2: would um, I'm sure she would um, and then we're also going to mark it out with step counts so people know right. roughly how many steps Great. they've done um, You know, to try and promote um, and I guess one of the things so it's not only for the staff but for you know, the city so it's nice to have somewhere where you can go you can learn a little bit about the hospital um, You're also you can get a bit of physical activity, you know, it's not strenuous and, and have a, a wander around um, and you know outside the necropolis will have information about the people who are, are linked uh, with with the hospital so
1: that's our plan and then it comes straight back into cathedral precinct and then the final link is with peter lowe who's the founder yeah. of the royal college of physicians and surgeons of glasgow his right. um, tombstone is just over at the side of the cathedral so it's right. a nice link that brings right. everyone back
0: in great mm. right sounds wonderful yeah. okay right um Bringing you to our final question at least, which won't be the final question, but this is a totally loaded question and we ask this of all our guests. So what is your favourite building in Glasgow and what would it tell you if it's walls could Talk?
1: I'll go first because you've just done a lot of talking there. (laughs) So um, yeah, I think my favourite building is probably the Kibble Palace and
2: so
1: I live you know, close to the Botanic Gardens and I've always loved the Kibble Palace Mm, because it's it's somewhere that, you know, you go in and you're like in a different world Mm. with the the temperature, the smells of the the beautiful ancient ferns. And I think what amazed me was that the Kibble Palace was... uh, privately owned glass house mm, for Sir John Kibble. That's right, and it, yes. yeah, when he wanted to give it to Glasgow I think it was due to go to Queen's Park that's right, but he yep. had some <laughs> argument with the town council. Yeah, and they, they knocked him back. Yeah, so so we got it over <laughs> in the West End in the Botanic Gardens and so it remained there obviously until it went down south to get repaired in 2004. So it's been on a couple of journeys. It came up to the Botanic Gardens from Loch Long John Kibble's garden on a barge and then it went down south as a construction to get re- redone and um, over the two years with multi-million pound cost and I think it's like everything in, in you know you don't really realize you miss something until it's not there and I remember the couple of years the Kibble Palace was away I kind of thought oh, this is, I can't wait for it to come back I had nice memories of like the orchid fair I would go with my parents my dad was into orchids and that was a really nice memory going in with friends and walking our dog in the park, and mm-hmm. it's just always mm-hmm. a building that I associate with really happy memories.
0: Right. Kate?
2: Okay, so, so I'm going to tell you my favourite building is a building that's not there anymore, but just bear with me. So um, I think my favourite building, is quite a difficult question, but I think it's the Western Infirmary. So obviously the Western Infirmary is now raised to the ground. So a bit like the Glasgow Edinburgh thing, you were either a Western doctor or a royal doctor so I spent most of my formative years in the western I was very much western through and through I'm not now now I'm royal through and through (laughs) (laughs) so you know I spent many years there and you know I've got lots of fond memories of um, you know going between the old buildings and the, the new buildings along this filthy corridor with mm-hmm, all manner mm-hmm. of creatures in it that shouldn't be there yep. ghosts you know sort of terrified as a sort of responsible doctor running through the corridor because i was scared that something was going to get me <laughs> um, and then you know there are bits about there that are still there so um there's the elder um alexander elder um chapel
0: mm-hmm, so um I mm-hmm. think yeah, that's built in the sort of yeah.
2: 1925 is listed and um so I'm not particularly religious, but often you'd have these terribly busy night shifts. A&E would be over in the, in the new building, and we quite often sit for you know 10 or 15 minutes in the in the chapel. So the chapel's beautiful. It had, you know it has beautiful stained glass windows, um, and it was kind of built as a tribute to nursing and medical staff that lost their life during the uh, war. So I've got lots of fond memories of there, and you know I think. Um, if its walls could talk to you, I think there's lots of things that the Western Infirmary would uh, have to tell you. But one thing I like, which links in with here, um, so William McEwen moved to the uh, Western after he worked here. we already alluded to him, maybe being a slightly difficult character with you know that ambulance man. Um, and so, he, so in the Western, he wanted to operate, and there was no space in the operating theatre. So nowadays, surgeons might stamp their feet and go off and sulk and have a coffee, but not William McEwen. William McEwen. Got out his drapes, got out his table, set up an operating theatre in the corridor, and just carried on. So I'm sure that there are lots of tales like that that the Western could could tell you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, okay, right, we're going to open it up to the floor, and if there are any questions from the floor, so this is a special edition, now's your chance. Um, I worked uh, here a few years back as a junior doctor, and there was always rumours that there are tunnels from the sub-basement leading to all sorts of bits of the city, including George Square and even further afield. <laughs> it, is that remotely true or is that junior doctor rumour?
1: I don't know. I've heard these rumours as well, including, <laughs> including the one where there's a tunnel and a, a pipe going down to the dry gate that pumps beer into the doctor's uh, dining room in the seventh floor. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. Um, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else in the audience wouldn't know anything about that.
0: There is, there is a tunnel between the city chambers and it goes somewhere into George Square, but the kind of shaft that takes you out of it is blocked, so nobody knows where it goes to in George Square. So we had, we had a theory when we were like looking at this. I, I did a, a conservation management plan for George Square that it might take you into the cenotaph. And the cenotaph was, in fact, like a mini rocket ship that was like, you know, the escape out of, you know, city chambers were ever besieged or anything. But possibly not. <clears throat> Any other questions? Um, during the pandemic, um, having the big, like, open nightingale awards uh, wasn't very
1: conducive to preventing COVID spreading. There was a lot of chat at the time about this building was not fit for purpose, and they were going to rebuild and rebuild the hospital on the same site. Is that, are there any active plans to do that, or is that
3: not the case anymore?
2: So, so I, th- I think there are plans to modernise the the Royal Infirmary. Um, I don't know that there's plans to um, get rid of to, to rebuild on, on on this this site. And um, like we said earlier, they'll have to take Hilary and Morvan and John and I out to do that. So, I think there are pl- there are pl- there are modernisation plans, um, but. So, and so far as we know, I don't think there are plans to, to rebuild exactly you know, on here.
3: Thank you very much. That was absolutely fascinating um, series of, of talks. I have, I have two, two quick questions. You, you painted a very compelling picture of the infirmary as a place where kind of people were free to be radical and experiment and brought about really significant you know, innovations in medicine. How easy was it for women doctors to... Um, come through the infirmary. Was the infirmary a place that was early in its opening its doors to young women who wanted to be doctors? And then quickly, my second question was, you, you spoke about how uh, the original infirmary was, was funded, its, its opening. How was it funded through the 19th century? I I gather it wouldn't have got state funding. Was it, was it a charitable? Was it in a city charity?
1: I think in uh, relation to your first question, there is um, a nice uh, piece of work that one of our uh, committee members, Rosa McMillan, did about the pathology department at Glasgow Royal Infirmary and they were very forward thinking about employing women pathologists and she's done a a, a, a nice thesis on that work. So yes, certainly in pathology they were very um, supportive of women in that department, far more than any other hospital at that time. Yep, so Morgan has a...
3: Hi, I'm Marvin, I'm one of the trustees. So um, the first woman resident in the Royal was in 1899. um, And actually the permanent resident was um, Anne Louise McElroy, who's quite a famous obstetrician. Um, So the first female resident, that was before quite a lot of other places. We're doing a bit of work at other um, early women pioneers as well. So watch this space. There might be another exhibition on certain other people. She was really the first woman professor about. in the UK as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Fascinating. She's, she's
2: she worked with Monroe Care. So right. The yeah. Engine, yeah. And then, so your second question, so subscriptions. So until it became the NHS, it was subscriptions. So people Just would, yeah, um, so individuals and, and companies mm-hmm, would subscribe. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, we have a, a subscription receipt actually on the wall over there um, from um, one of the minories, I think, um, And so basically like your company would subscribe and if your company was a subscriber then you could make use of Mm -hmm. what was on offer in the Royal Infirmary.
0: Yes, yeah, that was one of the things that I I felt quite uh, um, emotional about with the um, Victorian Infirmary because it had been built by subscriptions from people right across the south side of the city and therefore it belonged to the people from the south side of the city and I felt they should have some say in what happened to it Mm -hmm. and it just didn't really work out like that unfortunately but you know.
2: Yeah, I, kind of, I kind of wish that uh, we'd got into all of this before so we could have um, gone and had a look at the Western and, and the Victorian and tried to at least salvage some, some things yeah, but,
0: yes. I think it depends on the NHS board and how they handle it so Edinburgh seems to be a lot more progressive <coughs> than Glasgow does but I'm hoping that kind of Glasgow and Clyde will learn from those kind of things and will be more thoughtful about how it handles you know, some of these fantastic estates we'll mm-hmm. see
3: um, there's some nice plaques round about the Royal as well from some benefactors, if you ever get into the Royal to have a look. Um, but David Dale, he was a famous person from New Lanark, sort of a um, philanthropist. He was involved in the Royal initially for several years until he, his death. Um, so he actually helped set up the funding. He was chair of the funding committee for the Royal Infirmary initially in the 1780s um, and onwards. But you should have a look. There's some quite interesting plaques about how things were funded and they funded beds and they funded wards and different things as well.
0: Any other questions? Now's your chance. Okay, well, shall we wrap this up then? Well, Hilary, Kate, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure talking to you both and I wish you every success with um, the museum and I hope it goes from strength to strength, particularly with with your walk, which sounds fascinating. And I hope everybody joins me in thanking both Hillary and Kate for their time this evening Thank you.
2: Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes
1: the understanding appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment do you want to know more? have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage this podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust The
0: podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnocks.